Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music attorney Kamal Moo. First of all, I think this is exciting news. The UK, United Kingdom, has actually drawn up a roadmap for live music to start up again. They're figuring that live gigs are going to be here by the summer. There's actually a four-step plan. So what will happen is there's a maximum of 1,000 people that will be allowed in any venue or 50% capacity, whichever is lower. That's just for indoor events. It's a 50% capacity for outdoor events. And if they're very large events, it's only 25% seated capacity or up to 10,000 people, which is pretty big in my opinion. They're thinking that indoor shows are going to start on May 17th with outdoor shows starting on June 21st. Now, this is all dependent upon vaccinations, infection rates, hospital admissions, and any new variants of the virus that might pop up. That being said, it's very cool that we're getting back on track here, at least in one part of the world. Now, of course, there's nothing for the United States yet, but hopefully that will come soon with more and more people getting vaccinated With the infection rates going down, or at least stabilizing, hopefully we're going to get back to maybe not normal, but somewhere in the ballpark sometime soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs that will help you take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosenskycourses.com to learn more. Now here's something that I found very interesting. The most hated rock bands of all time. Yes, Best Life looked at lists, message boards, articles, And they came up with five metrics in order to actually gauge this. First of all, they looked at LA Weekly's list of top 20 worst bands, Vice's list of 123 worst musicians, the ultimate guitar most hated bands, and two polls from Ranker, 102 most overrated bands, and the 421 worst rock bands of all time. So they weighted the value of each of these and came up with their top 21. So are you ready? Here we go. Coming in at 21 is Linkin Park. At 20, there's a Spin Doctors. Boy, that surprises me, considering that they're only around for just a very short period of time. 19, Nirvana. Again, very surprising. 18, Rush. Well, if you're not into prog rock, I get that. 17, Pearl Jam. 16, Oasis. 15, Korn. 14, Metallica, 13, The Doors, 12, Green Day, 11 is Coldplay, and now we come to the top 10 most hated bands. Coming in at 10 is the Dave Matthews Band. Coming in at 9 is Kiss. Number 8 is Radiohead. Number 7, Fish. Number 6, Bob Dylan. That's surprising. Number 5, Mumford & Sons. Haven't heard much from them for a long time. Number four, U2. Number three, Creed. Number two, Limp Biscuit. 
and the number one most hated bands of all time. You probably know what's coming. Yes, number one is Nickelback. The interesting thing here is there's a hated band index that goes along with this. And it's very close between Nickelback and Limp Bizkit, and even a little bit between Creed, but then it drops down quickly. So I think you'd have to say that those three are the most hated bands of all time. And this is looking at the world of information that they kind of pulled this from. So do you agree with that or not? My guest this week is music attorney Kamal Moo, who's represented artists from various genres of music as both a personal manager and an attorney. He's negotiated several types of entertainment contracts, including recording, music publishing, and producer agreements with clients, including the legendary recording artist Janet Jackson, the Hallmark Channel, indie artist Little B, and several record labels, music publishers, songwriters, and producers. Kamal's also the author of The Straightforward Guide to the Music Business, which is a necessary read for anyone in the music business that needs a basic understanding of how it works. He's also the voice behind the six questions about the music biz podcast. During the interview, we spoke about working as a manager. The one thing that most people get wrong about the music business, label 360 deals, the difference between dealing with a major and indie label and being a contestant on jeopardy and much more. I spoke with Kamal via zoom from his office in Los Angeles. Tell me about your start in the music business. Yes. So um, my first real gig in the music business was um, about 2007. Uh, I graduated from law school, passed the bar in 2006 and uh, worked for a venture capital company for a while. But then that company went out of business. And then uh, 2007, my brother's band got offered a record deal. They got really big on MySpace. Uh, They were like a screamo rock band. They got offered a record deal from like a really solid um, independent record label. And so I started managing them and that was my real first foot in the door. And then I helped them produce the album and went on tour and, um, you know, all that good stuff. Okay. So you started as a manager. There's two questions I have about that. The first is, did you negotiate any kind of contracts while you're also a manager? So we had an attorney, um, who, who actually, you know, negotiated the deal on the legal side, but I talked with the owner of the label and sort of, you know, figured out the deal terms. Uh, it was actually a really good deal and, and they were very fair. So um, it, it worked out for the best in that sense, but I didn't have to really, you know, fight too hard on that, on those terms. But yeah, no, a little bit. And then as I went on, I got picked up more clients and I would do more, co- more and more contracts for them. The reason why, I, I'm not sure if it's a conflict of interest, but it's one of those things where, you know, maybe it's better to have somebody who's dedicated to that while you're dedicated to being a manager. I agree. It's better for sure. I, I, that's one reason if a big deal came along, you know, I would sort of hand it off to another attorney to sort of handle that side of it. Uh, and then I would work on the broader strokes uh, of the deals. But yeah, generally I'd, I'd prefer that. That is better arrangement for sure. So when you graduated law school, did you have any intention of getting into the music business? Yes, uh, actually I was, so for undergrad, I went to USC for undergrad. I was a music industry major. Uh, and then I went to law school. I took a bunch of music really, you know, music focused classes copyright law, things like that. And so I've always wanted to be in the music business. I did a lot of internships in college at uh, record labels. And so that was the goal. Um, and I just sort of, <laughs> luckily my brother got, ended up getting a record deal and that was sort of my way in. Um, but yeah, all my whole life, since I was like 14 years old, I wanted to be in the music business. 
Yeah, but management is way different. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's it's a very um, management. It's it's tough. Uh, you know, it's a hustle and um, just getting out there, making things happen. And so, yeah, I just have to sort of learn on the job on that one. Luckily, I was a lawyer at that point. But still, I mean, just management is a whole different world, like you said. And it, it's very, um, it has its own sort of, I don't know, feel to it, way of doing business and so forth. So I have to really get, learn how to do all that. Time intensive too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, going on tour, we were on tour for three months at a time and I was, I went with them. Uh, my brother was only 18 at the time. So my mom was like, you know, you're not letting him go out on the road on his, by his, by himself. So I went with them and um, it was great. It was really, it was a lot of fun, really, um, you know, really good, really hard work. Um, but it was a great experience and yeah, very time consuming for sure. Why did you stop being a manager? I just got burnt out on it. You know, I had other clients who I picked up and it was a tough, it's a tough gig, you know, management's a tough gig. And I said, you know, at this point, having gone through a few deals and learning about the business, I felt more comfortable getting on, you know, into the legal side on the attorney side. Um, and so I, that's when I started my law practice around 2010. I still had some clients who I managed all the way up until like 2015, 16, um, sort of on the side, but then I kind of shifted my focus more to the legal aspect. Um, in around 2010. Looking at the page for your law firm, I found it interesting that you're doing all sorts of cutting edge law in terms of video game law and app law and art law, which I never realized was a thing. So that's actually my partner. I do mostly the music and film stuff. And then my partner did that, that kind of stuff mostly. So you know, we, we, we kind of divided the duties there, but yeah, we, that's the thing. I mean, we see the, where the world is going and, you know, just trying to, trying to change with the times and shift and, and just be, uh, be ready, you know, for what comes next. Okay. So you're doing music and film law, but as we know, those are two completely different industries. So how does that work in terms of, you must have a different approach then to each one. Yeah. I mean, they are very different. Um, I, I definitely, I'd say it's honestly, my practice may be like 80% music and 20% film. It's mostly music for sure. Um, but yeah, it's a different thing. I, I, I have a strong interest in the film industry as well. I actually wrote and produced a, you know, a feature direct to video film, like a couple of years ago, like in 2016. And, um, so I, I definitely have a strong interest in the movie business as well. It is very different, just the way it is, the personalities and how the business is conducted. And there's lots of unions involved on the, on the film side and music, there aren't really, you know, when you're talking about recording and stuff. So it's not so much, uh, it's a bit, yeah, it is very different, but yeah, I, I'm definitely more experienced on the music side though, for sure. Okay. Well, let's talk about that then. What's the one thing that when people come to you and want to employ you, what's the one thing that you find that they either don't understand or they get wrong? I think that a lot of times they just don't have the basic knowledge that that just you know how the industry is structured how contracts are structured and i understand that because i mean most musicians you know that i know don't really care about that stuff to really dig into it um, that's one reason i wrote the book is because i'm trying to just pass along that information in in a in a simple way that's not too much that's not overbearing that's not you know gonna make someone's head spin uh but in a way that can be digested easily by just a regular person regular musician and i think that's that's you know that's that was the um that was the motivation behind it in that sense. I mean, I get a lot of clients who come to me and that's the one thing that they're missing is just they don't, don't have the knowledge, the, the knowledge base to really draw from. And I have to kind of educate them on how to really navigate the industry. Well, since we were on your book, let's talk about that. I loved it. And I'll tell you why. First of all, you took a 
what could be a rather dry and complicated subject and you made it easy to read and re- and easy to understand, which is not easy. So good job on that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. The second thing is, it's like I say, it's a fairly easy read, but it, and it's a, a fast read, but you get your arms around the big picture real fast. So I felt I had a pretty good background and all that stuff because I've been around for a while. But, uh, you know, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, oh, well, that's an interesting way of talking about that. The one thing that struck me, I'll tell you, was the difference between a composition and uh, sound recording. When you talked about composition as a blueprint and the sound recording more as the house that the blueprint builds, that's such a great analogy. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I came up with that analogy a few years ago because I used to give a lot of lectures um, and actually I teach a class in music publishing at my old law school. And I was trying to find a way to, that was one concept that I, I found a lot of my clients got stuck on. They just could not conceptualize the difference, the difference between a composition and a sound recording. So I needed to find a way to sort of relate that to them. And, and so, yeah, the house and blueprint analogy really was, has been helpful. And um, yeah, I just came, I came up with that a while ago. Like, what, what can I do to, um, to communicate that concept? And yeah, and, and the book in general, I think it's one thing. My, my view, too, is that like a good attorney is a, should be a teacher in a way and be able to make complicated things simple. I have, uh, I've had a lot of clients come to me who've said, uh, oh, yeah, my last lawyer made me feel like an idiot. He talked down to me. I just didn't understand what he was saying. And I said, look, I won't do that to you. That's not how I do business. I think that a good lawyer is going to sit down with you and explain everything in a way that you can understand. And it's not rocket science. I mean, it's, it's definitely, some of it gets a little bit complicated, but I feel like any concept can be made simple. And that's kind of my approach in general. I think, uh, you know, as an attorney, I, I think my job is to try and simplify the law and not make it more complicated and inaccessible. One concept I think that's really difficult for, especially older musicians to get their arms around is streaming royalties and how small they are. I think what it is more than anything is the concept of scale that people just can't get their arms around, meaning that a, a million of a physical product is a lot. A million of a digital product isn't all that much. And, you you know, we're talking hundreds of millions and billions here. How do you approach that? I, you know, I kind of tell a lot of my clients that you know, in this day and age, just the way the industry sort of shifted, as I've seen it over the last several years, is that I think that music definitely, it, you know, back in the 90s when I was growing up, you, could, you can get really, make really good money off just selling records, right? Obviously, that's not the case anymore. So I feel like today, I think music is, if a lot of times you have to kind of wrap music into a larger strategy. Uh, for example, like, you know, there are musicians who are also kind of become influencers and they have sponsorship deals. And Rihanna, for example, has her fashion line and her makeup line, and she's making hundreds of millions of dollars from that. So, you know, I think that if, you know, the successful musicians today aren't just thinking, well, I'm going to put out a hit record and that's going to be my, you know, I'm going to get rich off of that. That's really not going to happen anymore. So I, I try and say, look, think of a bigger strategy. Think of the touring strategy, the merchandise strategy, the sponsorships, the, you know, how can you stand out from the pack otherwise in addition to being a musician? And that's, I feel like just make it a component of your overall strategy. And I think that's, that's kind of the recipe for success nowadays. That's like the musicians that I've seen who've done well have sort of, they understand that. They understand that they're kind of influencers on top of being musicians as well. So um, I think that's sort of trying to, you know, trying to pass that along to my clients is one of the, the things. And I think, you know, a lot of the younger kids get it. Like a 19 year old kid, they understand the power of, you know, Instagram and, you know, they can put a, you know, if they have enough followers, they can put a post up and get paid 
ten, twenty thousand dollars for that in just for putting a post up. And but they maybe they got that audience because of their music in the first place. Right. So I think it's just, you know, thinking in those, in those terms. And that's kind of how today the music industry is going to uh, just how it's going to be from for a while anyway, from now on. Yeah. I never find pushback coming from any of the younger generation of musicians or artists. It's always the older ones that are giving you pushback on that. And, you know, they just cannot get their arms around the whole thing. Right. Right. No, it's, um, it's a whole, it's, and it's changed quickly. I mean, like I said, I, you know, I grew up in the nineties and it was a whole different world back then. You could, you could sell 10 million records uh, if you're a really popular artist. Now it's like, that's doesn't really, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it, it's different, but I mean, also too, it's a democratization of music. I mean, anybody can put out a record nowadays. Anybody can get their stuff on Spotify, Apple music, uh, whatever. But um, it's, it's really, it, it, to stand out from the crowd is the hard thing now, right? It's like anybody can put it out, but how do you get that attention on you? So it's a whole different dynamic for sure. And, and I hear what you're saying. Yeah. There's a section in your book about 360 deals. Are they really happening anymore? I mean, I haven't heard anything about a 360 deal in quite a while. And I would think as an attorney, you would kind of steer your clients away from that, right? It depends um, <clears throat> how how much the labels want to take of the other sources of income. Uh, so, for example, let's say that a major label offers a record deal. The typical royalty rate they're going to get give the artist is around fifteen to twenty percent of the you know the income from the record sold, uh, and then they're going to want to maybe take 15 percent on the touring side, merchandise, and other stuff like that. So they're not taking a lot, but they're not giving a lot on the record side either. There's some indie labels, though, who wanted to feel like more of a partnership. So they're like, okay, well, we'll give you 50% royalty on the records, but we want 50% of your ancillary income as well. So we're kind of in this together 50-50. So it really depends on how, you know, every deal I've seen, you know, major labels tend to do the first way where they, you know, they give you a lower royalty on the records, but they're not going to take as much on the 360 side. But then indie labels tend to ramp it up and do more 50-50. So it really depends on where the deal's coming from and sort of their business model. And yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I've noticed. So there's usually some kind of 360 component in there somewhere. Who's easier to deal with the major label or an indie? <laughs> easier in what sense? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's definitely more complicated with the major, right? Yeah. I mean, their, their, their contracts are like 50 pages. Sometimes they'll have like the, the sort of facing pages, like the first you know, like five or six that really have the deal terms and then the additional 50, 60 on the back uh, that are their standard terms. Uh, labels, smaller indie labels are tend to be a bit more nimble. They can move faster. Their deals are a little bit shorter. They're like maybe 20 pages. So, but then again, sometimes it depends on how busy the label is. I mean, if it's indie label with a bunch of artists still, you're going to have to wait a while to get that paperwork back. And same thing with the major labels, uh, unless you have a priority client, you know, who's really, they, they want to sign quickly, they're not going to get back to you as fast. So it really depends on kind of the situation and how, how much, uh, you know, how much buzz your client has and how much they really want to get with them. So my main client is actually Janet Jackson. So like I do all of her contracts. And so, you know, whenever she's doing any kind of deal, people kind of give her priority in general, you know, uh, because it's Janet Jackson. So uh, that tends to help. But if it's a newer artist, then they're not really going to get that sort of, you know, snap to it attention. <laughs> so it kind of depends. How are you finding budgets these days, recording budgets? The reason why I say that is for the longest time, I, I think that A-list artists always, you know, they never had a problem with it, but it's everybody else that had really skimpy budgets. It seems to me everything is coming back a little bit. Is that what you're finding? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like the labels are willing to put the money out. I think that, as we mentioned before, since music is the way it is now, like the industry, anybody can kind of create a buzz. Uh, if they sign an artist who's already got a pre-existing fan base, they're going to put a little bit more money into that project because they see it's like, oh, you have 3 million followers on Instagram or whatever, or, or a million followers. That, that means something in, that, in the sense that like, well, you know, you have this audience, let's build that audience, let's put some more money into your project to promote it. Um, if it's a brand new artist, I mean, if there, but sometimes there's some artists out there who just kind of come out of nowhere who are just really have a lot of heat and the labels get really excited about them and they want to get into a bidding war over it. But I feel like, yeah, I mean, the, the labels, you know, the good labels are willing to throw some money into promoting uh, the artists they believe in and who, who they think have a shot at making it. So, yeah, no, I definitely think the budgets, they're kind of all over the place. Really, yeah, It depends on the label and their level of enthusiasm and, and their faith in the project. So, um, but yeah, I, I, they'll definitely spend the money when, when, um, when it comes time. There's a part in your book about producers and producer deals. And I spend a lot of time in my life as a producer. I have a lot of friends that are still doing this. And the f- interesting thing is once upon a time when you're in physical sales, when physical sales dominated, a producer can make out pretty well. But now that that's not the case, you can offer any kind of a deal, but if there's not cash going along with it, it doesn't much matter because what can you expect on 4% of, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's true. Well, I think, yeah, the advances. I mean, you know, back in the day, like I said, in the in the 90s, early 2000s, some of the big name producers were getting paid like $100,000 a track, 200000 a track because they really could deliver. Now you're really not seeing those types of advances. I mean, there are a lot of young kids out there we're making music on their computers and they're selling beats for major projects for like $2,500, $5,000, you know, it's not that much money. Um, but the idea is hopefully they land that placement, they get some attention, then other people will come to them. They can make money from those smaller projects as well. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely changed. I think it's more of a volume business now as a producer, right? So, uh, you know, you make five grand here, five grand there, but if you do like, you know, 30, 40 tracks, you know, in a year and you, you get, the money off that then that you know starts to add up so definitely it's more volume business but then again nowadays it's a lot easier to make music right you can have a macbook and ableton or logic and you can knock these things out pretty quickly whereas back in the day you know you had to have a whole studio and a setup and different midi devices and all things you have to put together and and you know that was way more cost and labor intensive um so yeah in that sense it's it's, it's different for sure copyright seems to need a, a makeover how do you see copyright in the future well, I think that, um, you know, they passed the Music Mod- Music Modernization Act like uh, a couple of years ago. So there were some good changes in there. Um, there. This year, they're supposed to be launching the Collective, which is like a quasi-governmental agency that's going to be responsible for collecting and distributing mechanical royalties for streaming uh, to songwriters and publishers. I think that's a great step because right now it's sort of done as sort of like a <clears throat> relationship between uh, the streamers plus like, the publishers and Harry Fox and, you know, all those things now, like streamlining the process, it's going to definitely help. So I think, yeah, I think it more than so much the law, it's just more, how do people get paid? I think streamlining that whole process is needs to get better. I think that's a step in the right direction, the collective, but you know, I think, yeah, obviously with the fast paced nature of the internet, I mean, there's definitely got to be better ways to do things. Um, so yeah, I think copyright law definitely should keep up with the times. And I think, you know, they're trying, I think the Congress has been trying to do that. One of the places where it really falls down is when it comes to syncing, especially for sync licensing, especially when it comes to YouTube, Instagram, IGTV, things like that, where, you know, there's the constant battle between what's fair use and what isn't. Mm-hmm. 
So how do you see that shaking out? Well, you know, <clears throat> funny you mentioned that. So I had a client who was like a hip hop violinist for a number of years. Uh, I don't represent him anymore. He was, a, I, was a, I managed him till about 2016. And what we did actually, we signed a deal with a company that had sort of a blanket license in place with YouTube. So for example, anything in this publisher's catalog, we could do a cover of it and not get the video taken down. So my violinist, he would do a cover version of a hip hop track. He'd have a producer recreate the track and not use the original track, but he would redo the, you know, replay it and everything. And then we wouldn't get banned because it would, um, they kind of had a pre-existing blanket license in place with that publisher. So I think that's sort of the way around it is like these publishers are seeing, hey, there's money here. Uh, there, you know, ad revenue from YouTube, you know, can, can, you know, add up. So it, it's, it, I think that's kind of the way it's been working out where like people can do those if they have the right deals in place with these uh, companies that have blanket licenses to let people do covers on YouTube. And I think that's kind of sort of the way for now. Anyway, that that's been working pretty well, I think. On the other hand, you have TikTok. Right. And there are licenses in place as well, but they're not paying a lot. And, and I don't see how, other than the exposure factor, I don't see how artists are making any money out of it. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. I think TikTok is so so new and like they have to figure out some minimums there. You know, just like, for example, you know, you sell a CD, you get, the songwriter is going to get 9.1 cents for each composition they have on that CD. Uh, and I think they're after, you know, the copyright royalty board is figuring out those sort of minimums that need to get paid out in these places. That's what they did with like the streamers like Spotify and so forth. So I think it's going to be, you know, that's a developing area for sure. And, and like how that's going to get paid out over time uh, is going to be interesting. What trends do you see in the business? Is there something that you see happening slowly moving or maybe quickly moving in a certain direction? You know, I think, <clears throat> I think now it's kind of interesting to me, like, so my, my wife is a middle school teacher. So like she teaches choir and like, she'll tell me, yeah, the kids are really into this right now or into that. And she'll show me stuff. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get it, but you know, I'm maybe I'm, I'm too old to get it. <laughs> and I think it's just, you know, the way we consume media now is really profoundly changing. I think the way that kids perceive it is way different than I did when I was a kid. You know, like I go out <clears throat> and I buy a CD, I listen to the CD. Now it's like they're, they're hearing music in like a TikTok video. And like there was the guy on the, on the skateboard drinking the ocean spray, you know, like, and that became a thing. And like, it's just the nature of, of how kids receive and digest music and media is just so different now. I mean, back in the day, I mean, yeah, like I guess the equivalent would be like MTV, you know, when they showed music videos back then. I'd watch music videos and that's how I found new music. But this is a whole different, just quick instant access thing. And they're 30 second clips, one minute clips. And and it's kind of interesting in that sense. So I feel like it, it's just the companies that are that can really sort of understand that and market towards that are going to do well and, you know, figure out how to make that happen. I mean, I know like, they, you know, Quibi, they launched Quibi, but then that went out of business quickly. So obviously that didn't work, but it's like trying to find that secret sauce, you know, and like, how do you grab the attention of these people um, in, in, in a new way? And I think that's, that's, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's tough. I mean, I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm too old to get it, but I'm like, guys, like, this is, this is a thing, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's fine with me, I guess. One of the things I find interesting for my subscribers, once a month I do, what makes the song a hit? And I'll take whatever is the number one hit globally and break it down and try to find out why. And for the longest time, what was happening was all the songs were compressed. They were short. There's no intros or outros. It gets right to the chorus, right to the hook right away. And mostly because the attention span is so quick. But that seems to be changing, especially this year, where I'm seeing all of the hits that are happening, the biggest hits 
are looking more like traditional hits from the 80s and 90s where they have long intros and the same song form and everything. And I'm wondering, how is that actually playing out with the younger kids, like you're saying? It must have some effect on them because, you know, these songs wouldn't be number one otherwise. I think maybe because we're all at home now and we've been, uh, you know, we've been in quarantine beyond for a year. We have just a lot more time on our hands to just listen to music and, you know, we're not out doing things. So we're like, okay, well, I'll just listen to the, you know, all this, you know, these longer tracks. Now, <clears throat> one thing that uh, I, I heard a lecture a long, long time, like 20 years ago, I heard this really fascinating lecture about music and, and how, and this is kind of a corollary to what you're saying, like how the music, the way that people hear music influenced how the music sounded. So for example, the guy used West Coast hip hop versus East Coast hip hop as an example. He said, so West Coast hip hop had a lot of bass in it, had a lot of like 808 drums because people listen to it in their cars. Cause it's, you know, we live in our cars in LA, basically we drive everywhere, but in New York, they didn't really have all that deep low end because people listen to their headphones on the subway. And that sort of dictated the sound because they didn't need all that extra bass because it was just on these little headphones. And I feel like, you know, it, it's just, the music that's going to work for the people is depending on like, I guess the listening environment and also the conditions you're getting receiving it under. Like I said, we're home all the time. So we have the time to listen to these extra long songs and we kind of like that. It's comforting, um, you know, to kind of have a long song that, you know, doesn't just isn't over in a minute and a half. Um, so I think that that's part of it. This is my guess. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, I'm not a sociologist, but that could be part of it too. I think that that's, you know, that's as good a theory as any that I've heard. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, th I think now, too, I mean, so many people watching more movies or watching more TV shows like uh, Bridgerton is like the biggest show on Netflix right now. And they love, you know, people are really into those things now. And I think there's just so much media being consumed that uh, yeah, I can see the, you know, the longer form things are doing well. As an attorney, what's the most fun thing that you do? The thing I enjoy the most is in helping a client start a record label. I really enjoy that. I really enjoy the whole aspect of starting a company. I have like a real entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I got that from my grandfather. He was an entrepreneur. And um, I just really like that whole aspect of putting together a company and, and signing artists and working with them and the producers. And just, I just love that part of it. That's really the most exciting part for me. Okay. What's the most difficult then? The difficult part is I hate, <laughs> it's going to hit funny saying this, but I hate conflict. I hate arguing with people. And sometimes, you know, when relationships go bad for my clients, I have to try and negotiate a settlement or termination and both sides are kind of angry and I hate that part of it. I mean, it's part of the job, but you know, I, I don't really, I don't really relish that part at all. Some people like to argue. I don't. So that's the part I, I like the least. Yeah. That seems part and parcel of being an attorney somehow. Yeah. I, I don't mind it. I mean, I'll do it of course, but if I could choose one part of my job to not do, that would be it. <laughs> I have a friend that's a contractual attorney, and, and the reason why he chose that is so he doesn't have to do any of that. Right. He just writes the contracts up, and that's it, and he's perfectly happy. That's mainly what I do. I, mean, I mainly do contracts, and luckily, I don't have to do a lot of settlements, but they do happen from time to time. So, Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? One thing that I've learned really is don't wait around for people to give you an opportunity, make your own opportunities. And by that, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of people I run into who for, and this could be anything. I mean, they say, uh, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to wait until I have the right feeling in me to write that novel or that screenplay or like really get serious about my music. 
and then it never happens. They just kind of drag it out. They just, it's a dream. It's a, you know, a pipe dream basically for them. But I realized that, for example, when I was, there was one summer in law school where I just, I didn't get an internship or anything. I just, I, I, used, I wanted to be a record producer. So I found there was a hip hop group that I, I knew the members, uh, you know, and then we were friends. And I said, hey guys, let's produce a record together. So we did a record, put it out. It didn't really go anywhere, but it gave me the experience I needed to learn about production and that whole process. So then when my brother's band got signed, I knew what to do there. And then now working with people like Janet Jackson, when she goes to record, I know what needs to happen. So I think that a lot of people just sort of wait around for their big opportunity, quote unquote. And I think that the more that you just start practicing now, start doing what you can now is going to be that much to your benefit. You know, don't wait around, just give yourself opportunities, just make opportunities yourself and then go from there. Before I forget, tell me about Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Yeah. So I was on Jeopardy um, when Alex was still alive and uh, yeah, my episode aired on uh, September 30th. Uh, I taped it in August and uh, I didn't win, but uh, I did I did okay. But uh, the guy I was up against was a real beast. So I was like, oh, I can, I'm not going to beat this guy. And uh, also, the the I have to say, the, the buzzers are really hard to... Like, I knew a lot of stuff, but I just could not beat these other people in on the, on the buzzer. Because the thing is, if you ring in too soon, you're locked out for a quarter of a second. So you have to ring in right after the, they say the last word and the clue. So it's a, it's a timing thing, too. Wow, I never realized. That's hard. It's really hard. Who would have thought? I guess you can't even practice for that because you don't know about it until you do it, right? Well, I knew I, I heard about the buzzer, so I kind of used like a pen and just kind of clicked it. But when you're actually holding it, it's not super comfortable. It's like this. It's like, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the end of a whip kind of, you know, and it has a little button on the top and you have to kind of hold it and just really just, just smash the button at the right moment. And it, it's not... Um, like I, had to, I had to learn that on the fly because I didn't just didn't know how that would feel. So uh, it was tough, but I had a great time. It was a surreal experience. I swear, I, I, it was like an out of body experience for me. I think about it, and I was like, it's like I wasn't. It's like I was watching myself from outside my body. Because I mean, meeting Alex Trebek alone would have been a big deal for me. Much less having to play a game that he was running. So it was, it was tough, but I enjoyed it. It was really cool. You can find out more about Kamal in his book at kamalandrew.com. That's Kamal, K-A-M-A-L, Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W, Kamal, Andrew, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.